Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Jeff Yulden. Some of you may have heard of Michael Faraday. Michael Faraday discovered the electronic, uh, electromagnetic field. He lived the late 1700s to the early 1800s and um, all the scientists came to Albert Hall in London to honour him because of his tremendous um, discoveries. And there were thousands of scientists there and uh, they listened to him give a lecture. And at the end of the lecture there was a thunderous applause for what he had said and what he had done. And uh, the Prince of Wales, who later became Edward VII of England, got up and made a speech in which he thanked Michael Faraday for his speech. And everyone expected Michael Faraday to come back onto the stage to, to acknowledge the, the uh, Prince of Wales speech. But he never came. Do you know why? Because he had checked his lecture to make sure that it finished about 5 to 7. Because at 7 o'clock he needed to get down to the prayer meeting, which was not very far away from Albert Hall. And while the greatest minds in Europe were thundering his applause, he was down mixing with a group of a few people in the church at prayer meeting. A a very amazing man was Michael Faraday. You might like to Google his name sometime and read a little bit about him. Wonderful man. At his death, or near his death, he was asked by someone, "What, Michael, what are your latest speculations. Because as you appreciate, any inventor has to speculate in their minds. That's how inventions take place. They dream dreams. And then if they're able, they put those dreams into practice. And so they said to him, Michael Faraday, what are your latest speculations? And Michael Faraday replied, he said, I don't deal with speculations now. The only thing I deal with are certainties. And today I want to talk to you about some of the certainties of the Advent movement. The certainties, the sureties. In fact, if you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke makes a very interesting statement about why he wrote his book. I don't know whether you've ever read these few verses. I hope you have, but maybe some of you haven't. And I want to read them now. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke 1 verse 1. And Luke is now giving the reasons why he is about to write the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor and he says this in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. In other words, he's saying... I know others have written down the story that I'm about to tell. I'm not the only one. He recognises that. But it says, as he says in the next verse, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us. In other words, the people who wrote the other gospels were eyewitnesses. They saw it. Luke didn't. But it seemed good, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So the book of Luke is addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus. By the way, that's a Greek word, Greek name. Theophilus is a Greek person, and it comes from two Greek words. Theo, which means what? Theos. What's Theos? Theo. God, correct. And Philo means lover. And the name Theophilus means lover of God's word, which is a very good name, I think. And so it's, the book of Luke is addressed to him by, by Luke himself, and he gives the reason why he wrote what he wrote. Verse 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. In other words, the purpose of the book of Luke is to give us certainty as to what we believe. I believe it's very, very important that we are certain about what we believe. Because the world in which we live today, especially those who go to university, are exposed to... It may be this and it may be that. Modern education today is not certain about anything. Because many of the things that they believe are changing all the time simply because um, their conclusions are incorrect in the first place. And so as, as other discoveries are made, they're finding that they are being contradicted. But the Bible is full of certainties and you and I must have certainties in our hearts if we're going to be confident about what we believe and if we want to share it to someone else. For example... Why would you want to share something that you're not sure of yourself? If you feel that there's mistakes in it or, or that it's, there are questions, you'll never share it with someone else because of the questions that you've got in your heart. That's why it's so important for us to be certain about what we believe so that then we want to share it and tell others about it. And Luke wrote his gospel so that we might be certain. Just go back to Proverbs, chapter 22, and Solomon makes an interesting statement. Psalms, Proverbs, in the middle of the Bible. Proverbs, chapter 22. Proverbs, chapter 22, and verse 20. Proverbs, 22, and verse 20. And here you'll see where Luke is actually quoting from. Verse 20. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge... Verse 21, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you. In other words, Proverbs is saying just what I said before, that when we're certain in our own hearts, then we are certain about wanting to share it with others. And uh, the, the, the devil's plan is to make us uncertain. Because he knows that once you're uncertain, you will never share your faith. And uh, so I want to talk to you this morning about the certainty of our faith. 
Come over to 1 Corinthians, and Paul makes an interesting parallel here that I want you to uh, have a look and is the basis of what we're going to talk about. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. It says this. Now all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now what's Paul talking about here when he says all these things happen unto them as examples? If you look at the previous verses, you'll find it's the experience of the children of Israel as they journeyed in the wilderness after they left Egypt on their way through to the land of Canaan, right? And he goes through some of the experiences. You'll read that in the previous verses. And he says all these things, that is the experience of Israel and what they went through in the wilderness wanderings, all of those things are examples are illustrations, and they're written for our admonition. What's the word admonition mean? Our admonition, what does that mean? Our instruction? Upon whom the end of the ages have come. So in particular, these things have been written for whom? When it says, upon whom the end of the ages have come, who's that in particular? The end of the ages. When's that? When is the end of the world? When Jesus comes back. In other words, it's particularly related to those who are living in the days of the second coming of Jesus, just before he returns. In other words, those things that happened to the children of Israel way, way, way back there are an illustration of what's going to happen to God's people in the last days. Get the idea? And uh, it's, it's a mirror image. We're going to notice as we go through that it's a perfect mirror image. What God had back there, the, the message that he had for his people then, is exactly the same message that God has for his people in the last days. And uh, that's the message of, of 1 Corinthians. So I want to go back to the Exodus movement and have a look at some of the, the original message. What was that original message that God had for the children of Israel? What were the, the doctrines that they believed in? What was it that drove that group, that Exodus movement, that movement that left Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and finally went through to the land of Canaan. What was that message all about? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12 at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 40 and 41. Chapter 12 and verse 40 and 41. Because we're going to notice the first thing about the Exodus movement is that it arose on time. It just didn't arise from nowhere. It arose on time. Look at this, verse 40 it says. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. So how long did God predict that they were going to be 
in Egyptian bondage? 430 years. Now, what does the next verse say? Verse 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. In other words, the the children of Israel left Egypt exactly on time. Is that right? It was a prophetic movement. God had predicted that they would be afflicted in Egypt for 430 years. And the Bible is so particular, it says, on that very self-same day, God raised up Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. So the message of the Exodus movement arose on time, exactly on time. In fact, if you come over to the book of Acts, chapter 7, the comment is made there by Stephen. Acts chapter 7, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 7, and verse 17. Acts 7, verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. Verse 20 says, At this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Now, if you'd been living back in the time of the Exodus movement and you were a slave in Egypt, which all the Israelites were for that period, and as the years rolled by, you must have been, as one generation, perhaps the generation that was living 100 years after they'd gone into Egyptian captive, captivity, you would begin to think, where is God? Has he forgotten all about us? Especially when the uh, taskmasters were there flogging you for getting behind in making the bricks to build Egypt. And this went on. The second hundred years went past. Nothing happened. The third hundred years went past. Nothing happened. The four hundred years went past. Nothing happened. But on 430 years went past, as God had predicted on that very selfsame day, God moved upon the heart of Moses and Moses led the children of Israel out of um, Egyptian bondage. Verse 22 says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. In other words, God raised up Moses. He had taught, brought him up in the, in the house of Pharaoh. He had been used to being exposed to being a general, being able to lead people. And God had trained him to take on the responsibility of leading the children of Israel, which was a mighty group of people, as we're going to notice in a moment. Now, as soon as the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, remember this. Do you think that through that 430 years that God's people were able to follow their religion? Were they able to... to, um, to worship God freely? Were they able to keep the Sabbath? Were they? Absolutely not. They were forced to work. 
And so during this period, the truth of God had just about died out. Because after these many generations, they had forgotten all about what happened in the days of Abraham. Their Bibles would have been confiscated. And uh, 430 years, that's a long time. And uh, they had just about forgotten everything. And so when God instructed Moses to, to uh, help them understand the truth, notice the very first thing that God instructed Moses to teach the people. Go back to Exodus chapter 25, if you don't mind. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. Exodus 25 and verse 8. And here's the first statement. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In other words... The first thing that God did was to bring back the sanctuary message to the Exodus movement because it had been wiped out. They knew nothing about it. All the intricacies of the worship of the sanctuary had been forgotten. So God established the sanctuary as the first part of the message of the Exodus movement. Remember Daniel's uh, psalmist said, Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary. So God sees the sanctuary as being very, very, very important. And the tragedy is that even some of us today hardly know much about the sanctuary. We've forgotten it. Because uh, instead of emphasizing it, then uh, we need to be studying it. Because God's way is in the sanctuary. That's how we find out what God is like, how the whole plan of salvation is outlined in the sanctuary. But there's something else that God gave those children of Israel. Come over to Hosea. Now, Hosea is a bit more difficult to find. It's near Daniel. So if you find Daniel, it's the next book after the book of Daniel. Um, You find the big books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Then uh, comes Daniel, then comes Hosea. Chapter 12 and verse 13. This is what it says. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet he was preserved. So what doctrine did God give the Exodus movement here? What do we call this? When God led a prophet, who was the prophet that God used to bring Israel out of Egypt? What was his name? Moses had the gift of prophecy. So, remember, we are saying all these things happened unto them as examples. We would expect that the sanctuary message is central to God's message in the last days. We would expect that the spirit of prophecy is is central to God's message in the last days because just as God led the children of Israel by a prophet and he preserved them by a prophet, so uh, Paul says all these things happened unto them as an example and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The two movements are so parallel. If you have a look at Daniel chapter 8, just go back one book to the book of Daniel now, chapter 8 and verse 13, where Daniel hears the angels talking. 
And this is what he hears in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, I haven't got time to go into this prophecy in detail, but what it's saying is the the angels are discussing how long is the sanctuary and the truth of God going to be allowed to be trodden underfoot. Now, if something is being trodden underfoot, what does that indicate? Is it, is it something that's, uh, uh, that's uh, being accepted as being important and being studied if it's being trampled underfoot? No. no, the very opposite. It's being ignored, it's being trampled down, no one's worrying about it. And so the angels are saying, how long, Lord, is the sanctuary truth and and the truth of God going to be allowed to be trodden underfoot? And the answer comes back in the next verse, in verse uh, 14, when it says, under 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed or vindicated or revealed. In other words, at the end of this 2,300-year prophecy, prophetic days or year prophecy, God was going to raise up a message, a movement, And that message was going to restore the truth and it was going to restore, in particular, the sanctuary. Because both those things have been trodden down for a long period of time, 2,300 year prophecy. But they were going to be restored at the end of that time. It's interesting that there are two identifying marks of God's remnant church. If you go back to Psalm 105... Back to the book of Psalms now, 105, and verse 42. 105. We're using our Bibles a bit this morning, but that's a good thing. Psalm 105, verse 42, it says this. For he remembered his holy promise. And Abraham, his servant, because the promise had been given to Abraham that they would go into captivity for 430 years, but then would come out of captivity. That was the promise that was given to Abraham, and that's what the psalmist here is referring to. He remembered his holy promise, and Abraham, his servant, he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles. That's the the land of Canaan. And they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. So according to this, the book of Psalms, why did God call his people out of Egypt? What was the reason? Yeah, so that they could be faithful to him and follow exactly the counsel that had been given originally. Isn't that right? That's, that's what the psalmist is saying, that they might observe his laws. And keep his commandments. And I love the statement in Fourth Testimonies where Ellen White says, It is as certain we have the truth as God lives. That's a pretty certain statement, isn't it? It's as certain that we have the truth as God lives. And one of the ways that we can establish God's truth is the fact that we can compare it with the Exodus movement 
and God's message today. That's why he gave them the Sabbath or, or reinstituted the Sabbath because the Sabbath had been lost in that period. As you can appreciate, the Egyptians are not going to give them every seventh day off, I can assure you. And so as the generations went past, they forgot it. But God restored the Sabbath during the Exodus movement, brought it back. Remember how he restored it there with the story of what? What was the great event that happened in the wilderness that reminded them of the Sabbath every week? What was it? Yeah, the falling of the manna that fell for six days and twice as much fell every Sabbath. And that happened for 40 long years. And uh, so that was a reminder to them of... um, of the Sabbath. Now, there's something else that's interesting with this movement. Come back to Exodus chapter 12. This is very, very interesting. Exodus chapter 12. Let's look at this. This might amaze you when you when you read it. Look at this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. Verse 37, it says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. All right, let's do a little bit of mathematics here. How many people would would you suggest then that that would be? 600 men plus children. Give me some idea of how many people that might have been in the Exodus movement. Hmm? How many? You think they had six or seven, maybe. It would be at least two million, maybe more. Huh? Could be three. As Fabio says, who knows how many children? We've, we, we just can't think in terms of two children because that's our way, but it's not necessarily the way of the ancient world. Um, so this is a huge number of people. It's, it's almost the population of Sydney. Plus, let's read the next verse, plus, what does it say there? Uh, verse 38 says, a mixed multitude went up with them also. Now this is an addition and flocks, and herds, a great deal of livestock. Can you just imagine this? The thing would have gone for miles as they journeyed from the the beginning to the end would have been miles long. And you can imagine the noise and the dust and, and with all the cattle and the sheep and it's horrendous. You imagine the skills that would be needed by Moses to lead such a group of people. Huge. Now, the question is asked, who is this mixed multitude? Who were they? Because the Bible says there was a mixed multitude that went up, not only with God's people, but this mixed multitude. Who were they? Yes, they were a mixture between the Egyptians and the Israelites. 
So you can appreciate that some of the guys thought the Egyptian women were pretty attractive. And so they started to intermarry. And so these children were half Egyptians and half Israelites. They had paganism mixed up with, uh, with a little bit of um, truth that was still in the Israelite heart. These were the mixed multitude. Half converted. Why did they join? Why did they leave Egypt with the children of Israel? Why do you think they left and joined them? Why? Say that again, Fabio. All right. Okay. They 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 admired. They were caught up, perhaps, in the emotional. Of the, of the time, because you can appreciate what just happened before this. Before they leave Egypt, what's just happened? Yeah, the, the, there were ten plagues, and the tenth one was what? The slaying of the firstborn. Do you think that made a big impression in Egypt? I tell you. Mourning and tears and upset. The, 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 the emotions that would have been associated with this is just something that would be difficult for us to really appreciate and imagine. But uh, these ten plagues had fallen. And this is happening now at the end of that period. And they'd heard a lot about this land of milk and honey, and they thought it was a whole lot better than the dusty, fly-ridden place called Egypt with its heat. And so they joined for all the wrong reasons. They, they, they didn't join because they loved the Lord, they simply joined because this sounded a lot better than what they were experiencing. And that's why the Bible calls them a mixed multitude. And by the way, it was this group of people that caused all the problems in Egypt, in, in, uh, in the Exodus movement. All the problems arose because of the mixed multitude. They were the ones that caused all the offshoots of the message. In other words, you know what I mean by an offshoot? A group that pulled away and thought that they were holier and, and more faithful than the, than the large group. That's an offshoot. And there were lots of those during the 40 years, believe me. So we can expect in the last days that there's going to be offshoots too of this message. Who people who think that they're holier or they have more truth than the church. They're more faithful to the original than the church. That's, the, the, uh, that's exactly the argument that were used by these offshoots. And it was the mixed multitude that caused all this. And there were two big apostasies, you'll remember. The first was over the golden calf. Remember that? And you might say to yourself, well, why would they get mixed up in bowing down to a golden calf? Well, remember in Egypt... They had worshipped the golden calf. They called it Hathor in Egypt. And you can go to the museums today and see images of, of Hathor, the cow god. And so it was not surprising that when Moses went away and they were left on their own, that they went back to what the practices that they were used to. And that's why they built this golden calf. The second apostasy, big apostasy, was over diet. Because the children of Israel 
had been used to a fairly high spicy diet with plenty of meat. That's what they had eaten all the time in Egypt. And when God called them out into the land of uh, Israel, into the wilderness, the very first thing he did is change their diet. And he gave them manna, which the Bible says was like sweet coriander. Very nice and sweet, but it was a vegetarian diet, a plant-based diet. Do you think the people were happy with that diet? Imagine this. God sends a diet from heaven, gives them the very best that it's possible to have, and they grumbled and moaned and groaned. And it was this mixed multitude that led in this rebellion against the diet that God wanted to give them because God knew what has been discovered now, just very recently, that a plant-based diet is so far superior. Let me just give you an illustration. Just recently, they have carried out some experiments with a Petri dish. Now, we all understand what a Petri dish is. It's like a little, I guess it's not really glass, it may be probably plastic, in which they grow a culture. And what they've done is that they have taken the culture of prostate uh, cells. In other words, cells that are full of prostate cancer. And they put those cancerous um, virus cells into the Petri dish. Then they took the blood of a person who eats some meat, eats lots of vegetables too and so forth, and they put that blood onto the cells that were infected with cancer. And they found that as soon as they did that, the blood killed many of the cancer cells. Then they tried another experiment. They took the the same cells from prostate cancer and put it in another Petri dish. This time, they got blood from someone who was a plant-based diet person. They'd been on a plant-based diet for, for a long time. And they took their blood and they put it onto the, the same cells. And you know, it killed all of the cells. I'm not telling you some... I'm making this up. This is recently... Just new experiments that have been, been found. They got breast cancer. And they did the same thing with breast cancer uh, cells. And they found exactly the same in the breast cancer situation. That the, the person who was fairly healthy, but not totally, then uh, killed some of them. And I tell you, we can be thankful at least the body is so good that it, that it kills some of them, because if it didn't, then we'd all be dead. But the body has the, a resilience and, and, and an ability to be able to fight. But when the blood is pure on a plant-based diet, it kills a lot. In other words, the best antidote to cancer is to have a plant-based diet. 
And that's the latest experiments that have been going on. And God knew that long before we ever knew it. That's why he gave to the children of Israel a plant-based diet, manna. And they rebelled. And that that was caused by this mixed multitude. And let's just come back to 1 Corinthians. Let me read you what Paul said here about about this matter. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 again, where we were reading before. And if we go back to verse 5, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. God is talking about these people who journeyed in the wilderness. He says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. So what were the majority? They were against God, see? God wasn't pleased with them. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now that word lust in the Bible is used in the context of the children of Israel, not in a sexual way, but in in lusting for the flesh pots of Egypt. The Bible uses that exact word and that's what Paul is quoting from here. And he says here in verse 7, Do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. So God recites here through Paul the experience. And these people had the theory of the truth but didn't have the experience. They were the ones that, who brought the standards of the group down and lowered the standards. The mixed multitude were the ones who kept Israel out of, out of the land of Canaan for 40 years. Because do you know how long it took to go from Egypt to the land of Canaan? Do you know how long it would have taken? The Bible says it would take 11 days. That was God's intention, that they journeyed over 11 days. Instead of 11 days, how long did it take them? 40 years. The whole generation died except Joshua and Caleb because of their rebellion. And the rebellion was largely led over these issues of sexual immorality and diet. And, and it's interesting that both are related together. So what did God do about it? Well, there was a shaking. And God shook that original group so much so that only Joshua and Caleb went through, which is a pretty frightening experience. You know, Jesus said that talking of the last days, when he talked about the ten virgins, how many of those virgins were not prepared for the coming of Jesus, did it say? Yeah, 50%. Now, I hope that that is not, God is not giving us a a statistic here. I hope he's just using an illustration. I don't know the answer to that, really. If you pressed me on it, I'd say, well, I don't really know because I don't think anyone does know. But there must be some reason why God said five were wise and five were foolish. If the vast majority would have said, well, nine were wise and one was foolish. But he doesn't say that. And that's a worrying experience. That's a worrying statistic when we think of what happened in the past. And also, 
both movements were encouraged to turn back. The children of Israel, when they got into the wilderness, Moses, why have you brought us out here to die and our bones be bleached in the wilderness, they said? Let's go back to Egypt. At least we had three good meals there and we had water. This is what their argument was to Moses. And they wanted to go back. And the temptation is sometimes in, uh, even in our day that there are those, there are voices who want us to go back, go back to the Reformation, go back to Luther and Wesley. And these men were wonderful men, but they didn't have God's complete truth. They had some of it. But our message is more than what Luther taught and more than what Wesley taught, marvellous and wonderful men as they were. But they died before all of God's truth was rediscovered. That's why these men never kept the Sabbath. Why they didn't understand about the sanctuary. I was brought up in the Presbyterian church. I had never heard about the sanctuary before I, I came in contact with the Adventist message. Never heard of it. I had no idea. The sanctuary, what are you talking about? And prophecy. I'd never studied Daniel and Revelation. But in God's, in the last days, God is raising up a message. And this message is to restore truth that has been trampled down for all of these long years and to restore the sanctuary. And that movement arose in 1844. And it continues to go through. In fact, I want to just read you what Moses said. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of Moses, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23. Look at this. This is a good verse. Remember this, that Deuteronomy are the, are the sermons of Moses. If you read through Deuteronomy, it's easy to read Deuteronomy because it's his sermons. And in one of his sermons here in chapter 6, because we've got to remember that when Moses wrote Deuteronomy, it wasn't written in chapters and verses like we've got it now. And while the chapters and verses are wonderful because otherwise we would never be able to find where we're reading so quickly, at the, other, the other side of it is that the chapters and verses cause us to disassociate the message often because we think it was all divided up. Well, in actual fact, it's not. And uh, this is part of his sermon, and he's saying in chapter 6 and verse 23, then he brought us out from there, talking of Egypt, that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. So Moses here, at the end of his life, is recounting how the Lord brought us out of Egypt to take us in, to give us the land that he had promised long, long ago to our forefathers like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then if you come over to Joshua, which is the next book after Deuteronomy, comes Joshua chapter 3 and verse 17. Joshua makes this statement. Joshua chapter 3 verse 17. Says then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. 
In other words, God's message was complete. It, it brought Israel from Egypt through the wilderness wanderings finally into the promised land. In fact, so close is the parallel between these two groups, that is Exodus and the Advent movement, so close is the parallel, do you know that we sing the same song that they sang? Have a look at Revelation chapter 15. Look at this. Revelation 15 and verse 3. Revelation 15 verse 3, it says, They sing the song of whom? Moses. In other words, the same song that if you read back in in Exodus chapter 15, the same song the children of Israel sang when they came through through the Red Sea and they stood on dry ground that we've just read, and they, Miriam and those led out in the great uh, chorus, all the musical instruments, and they sang, and they sang the song of Moses. And sometime I'd l- like to encourage you to read that song. It's a, it's a most wonderful song. And God's people in the last days are going to sing exactly the same song. That's how close the parallel is between these two movements. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. In other words, there's another stanza added that wasn't sung back there that will be sung just at the the time of the second coming, and that's called the song of the Lamb because that hadn't taken place yet way back in the days of Moses. And God has given to us irrefutable evidence that this message is right And when I meet people who want to say, well, I'll accept this part of the message, but I don't want to accept that part of the message, I say that's impossible because it is a complete package. God gave a complete package. And uh, one of the most wonderful things is for us to realise that the teachings of of the Advent movement are not made up stories that some people have made up over the years. The Sabbath wasn't instituted by man. God instituted that, the sanctuary, our, um, healthful living, our, our standard on, on, um, on, on um, how we dress and, and so forth, all comes to us from the Exodus movement. It's exactly the same. It's not some man-made um, piece of uh, evidence. The spirit of prophecy is part of the Exodus movement, and so it's part of the last movement. That's why when we see these two together, it gives us confidence that we're not following some made-up story. That is some man-made institution. God established this church and God will see it through. Even though there may be some things in it that are not always what we would like. Because it's made up of human beings like ourselves and none of us are perfect. But the message is perfect. And the message is going through. And I trust that God will help us to be faithful to that message. Always. And uh, to be ready when Jesus comes. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net.
sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him all and all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him all. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath a healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him all and all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him all. Yes, it's sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him all and all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that thou art with me, will be with me to the How I trust him, how I proved him all and all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That was Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus by Aka Peldridge. Coming up next from the album A New Song Collective, Rosie Smith will be singing Victory Song.
Marilyn, the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. I want you to imagine for a minute that I'm standing in one of my favourite spots right now while I'm talking. There's a patch of bush that can seem pretty drab on the outside, but when you wander into it, the atmosphere is quiet and refreshing. All I can hear is a gentle rustling of the leaves, and it does me good and helps me think thoughts that really count. So maybe I can pass some of these thoughts on to you. What are my two tips today? If you're a student, listen up. These tips are for you. If you're a mum, listen up. These tips are for you. If you're in business, <laughs> these tips are for you too. Simple tips. Have you ever been told to just ignore something and not to look at it? You go into someone's home and they say, Oh, don't look at the mess. And what do you do? You can't help but look around and see, yeah, that it is a mess. You mightn't have even noticed if they hadn't told you to ignore it. Or they can say, oh, don't look at the cobwebs, I haven't swept them down for ages. What do you do? You look straight up in this, at the ceiling, at those dangling necklaces all over the house, don't you? So when you're told not to look at something, what do you do? You look at it. I got to thinking about this the other day as we were whizzing along the freeway and I saw a sign that said, Unsee this. That's all it said. Whatever did that mean? Ha, huh. they wanted me to see it. But at first they made it look like, well, there was nothing to see. What do you do? Immediately you look more carefully. And what did the company who invented that sign want us to see? They simply want us to look and notice that the billboard is vacant and they want someone to pay the money and advertise on that huge sign. Well, the makers of that billboard understood human nature pretty well. Do you have a goal each day? You decide that you want to achieve that goal, but all through the day there are going to be unsee this distractions along the way and you're going to be taken off target. You look here, you look there, you look at that fancy little electronic device in your hand and before you realise it, your goal is out of reach again for that day. I read a statement from a favourite author of mine that really helped me to see the unsee this signs in life. Here it is. Success in any line demands a definite aim. Hmm. So tip number one today is this. Success in any line demands a definite aim. So, just ignore the things that pop up that will distract you and actually make you spend time on what you haven't planned to spend time on. Yes, it takes discipline. Yes, it takes determination. But keep your target in sight and keep hitting it until you hit it. And then, my tip number two is this. Enjoy the thrill as you develop this skill. Seriously, as you develop this skill, it really is such a thrill to get through the day and know, hey, I didn't focus on all of the unsee this signs along the way. Remember that, tip number one, success in any line demands a definite aim. Stick at your task, keep your target in sight and hit it. And enjoy the thrill as you develop this skill. Just two simple tips from the two-tip lady today who loves to help make your life more simple.
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.